Well, good morning. It's so good seeing all of you guys. Welcome to Forest Park. Uh, if you have your Bibles, just go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verse 18. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer as well. Ask Him to make Himself known to us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for today. God, I thank you for your mercy and for your grace that you have lavished upon us. Lord, I am so grateful that in our need, you have come to meet us where we are and you have fully provided for our greatest need. You have satisfied your wrath through your son, Lord Jesus, and you have accepted us, not because of us, but because of what your son has done on our behalf. Lord, what incredible news. And Lord, as we get to your word, uh, Lord, we confess that we have sinned. We confess our inability to fully understand you. We confess that we bring in our baggage and our preconceived notions when it comes to your word. And so, Lord, can you, through your spirit, meet us where we are? Can you, through your Spirit, open up our eyes, our ears, our hearts, and our minds? Lord, if there's any sin in our hearts, can you confront them? Can you, by your grace, convict us of it? Can you help us to repent of it and turn to you? Lord, can you take our hearts and soften it? And Lord, my, my prayer is that as we open up your word, as we understand your word, um, can it be more than just mere words that we hear? But can it impact us? Can it transform us? Can it lead to more obedience? Lord, as we look at a church that was divided over its church leaders, Lord, as we look at our own church and we struggle with unity, Lord, can you help us to fight for the unity of the faith? Can you help us to learn what it means to be a church that's, that, that's united, that stands on the gospel of Jesus Christ, that walks in humility? And Lord, I do pray for those who may not know you or have not surrendered their lives to you. Lord, can you save them? Can they walk out of here recognizing their desperate need for you? And can you open up their eyes? Can you help them to repent? Can you help them to trust in you as their Lord and Savior? And can you give them maybe the boldness to come and tell us so we can walk with them and see them get baptized and disciple them? Well, can you move? We need you. We can't do this without you. I need you to proclaim this word. Lord, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. As we're continuing our series through the book of 1 Corinthians, um, what Paul is doing in his letter to the church of Corinth, um, he's trying to persuade them, he's trying to reason with them as he is addressing 10 issues in the church. And as he's addressing these 10 issues, really the main message that he is communicating to them is that the gospel requires God's people to mature in purity and unity. 
And so my hope for us as a church is that we would understand this principle that as God's people, that we would understand the gospel requires us to mature in purity and unity. In other words, the more we mature in purity, the more we start taking ourselves away from this world and not act like this world and we mature in purity the more we will now walk in unity. And my hope for us in this series is that as we look at the gospel and as we look at how, how, how Paul addresses these 10 issues, what's central to all of these issues is the gospel and that we will learn that the gospel is relevant to every issue in our life. The gospel is decisive in addressing every issue and shows us how we as Christians must live. Now, a little bit of a recap and kind of a background as we get into the text. If you're new here, last week, um, Paul began to address the very first issue of 10 issues. And the issue he's addressing is division in the church. You see, the Corinthian church, they were divided over church leaders. And in their quarreling and in their strife, they were basically following their worldly culture. They were following the values of the city of Corinth. Because secular Corinthians put value in teachers and then when you follow a teacher and you subscribe to their teaching, the more important that teacher is and the more important the teaching is, now it elevates you above everybody else. And that value, that kind of paradigm now infiltrated the church. So how did these Christians start to act? They tried to become more important than their fellow brothers or sisters by following a certain kind of teaching. So some of them wanted to follow Paul because Paul was like the original teacher. Some of them wanted to follow Apollos because he was more sophisticated and more educated in his logic and his reasoning. Some of them said, no, I want to follow Cephas because he's more closely related to the, the real church in Jerusalem, more closely related to the Jews. And by following these different teachers, now we're more important than everybody else. And then some of them saying, no, I'm following Christ because Christ gives us a secret knowledge that he did not give you, which makes me now more important. So what does Paul do? He appeals to them for unity. And in a sense, what he is doing, he is saying, hey guys, listen here. The gospel requires the church to be united because it is the gospel that ultimately unites the church. And so last week, some practical lessons that we learned that if that's the case, if the gospel is what unites us, and we can be united because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who Jesus is on the cross, the life he lived that we could not live, the death that he died in our place, if that is true and that's what unites us, how should we live our lives? So last week we learned like we need to be grounded in the gospel. We need to continually to grow in our understanding of the gospel, who Jesus is, what he's done, the implications and the effects for our lives. We need to not just be grounded in the gospel, but we need to fight to believe the gospel. And it's not just the fight once a Sunday, it is a fight every single day because we're so easily influenced by the world that we forget who Christ is and what he's done for us. That we start to turn to ourselves and our performance that we need to do better rather than resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And then we need to daily preach the gospel to ourselves and to one another to help fight these lies that we have a tendency to believe. Now, as we get to our passage today, 
one of the difficult parts is when we study a passage, we kind of forget what Paul is doing. Because in this passage that we're going to study, we're going to see really he's just unpacking the gospel. But because we only look at the passage and not the whole scripture or the whole letter as a whole, we have a tendency to forget that Paul is addressing unity in the church. And so as we study the passage and he's unpacking the gospel, I want to show you, remember, how is he addressing unity in the church? But I want to teach you a principle before we get into this passage about unity. This is one of the things that we must understand about unity. Unity does not mean we just agree to disagree. That's not unity. You're right, I'm right, we're all right. Or, hey, let's just not talk about it. Let's not just go there anywhere. That's not unity. That is fragile. You know why? Because unity is going to continue as, as long as we continue to bite our tongue. Anybody good in biting their tongue? No. So what's going to happen? As long as you can bite your tongue, as long as we're not going to talk about that, we're cool. And then some person just opens their big mouth, and what happens? That's not unity. That's what the world teaches. But this is what unity is. Unity is that we agree on something that is so central that even in our disagreements, it's not going to divide us because what we agree on is more important than what we disagree on. That's unity. And so what is so central that we can all agree on? The gospel of Jesus Christ. That's unity. So that even in our disagreements, it doesn't matter why. Because the cross of Christ is central. That's what we agree on. And that is Paul's point in our passage. That is what Paul is going to try to communicate. As he's addressing the issue of unity, he's really unpacking the gospel. He's, in a sense, talking about the unifying power of the gospel. And what we're going to see is what's central to the gospel the cross of Jesus Christ, preaching a crucified Savior. That is what unites us. That is what we must be so central on that we can all agree on that what we disagree on doesn't matter. So let's see how Paul unpacks uh, the cross of Christ and see what he says about the cross of Christ. Last week we read the whole passage. This one is going to be a longer passage, so we're just going to read a couple verses at the time. But we're going to start off with verse 18. It says this, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. Now, as we read verse 18, let's not forget verse 17. Remember last week when we looked at verse 17, where Paul says, I'm not preaching the gospel with eloquent wisdom? Like, what's his method in preaching the gospel? He's not trying to bedazzle it. Why? Because he wants to make sure that the cross of Christ is not be empty. And so the question for us is like, why, why, what is the madness to his method? Verse 18 shows us. And what verse 18 is showing us, what is central to the gospel? The cross of Christ. And it is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to those who are being saved. And so, 
Here's the immediate effects of a crucified Savior. And there's kind of like irony and paradox here. Because if the gospel is what, what, was, what must unite us, it seems like the gospel divides. And in a sense, the gospel does divide. Like we read in verse 18, how does the gospel divide? It divides in the immediate effects of a crucified Savior. It is foolishness to those who are perishing, to those who are on the road to eternal destruction. The gospel and the idea of a crucified Savior is absolutely absurd. And yet to those who believe, to those who've been saved, The cross of Christ is absolutely brilliant and powerful. And this principle between dividing, between those who believe and those who don't, is a principle taught throughout Scripture. The gospel is either accepted or rejected. It's either a sweet aroma or it is a stench. When Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, how many roads do you have? Two, one narrow, one wide. The narrow one is hard. The narrow one leads to life. The one that is wide that everybody takes leads to destruction. When you study the Psalms, when you study the Proverbs, what do you have? You have the righteous and the wicked. You have two roads. The righteous leads to the road to life. And the wicked takes the road that leads to death. And the principle that Paul begins right off the bat is there's no neutral ground when it comes to the gospel. There's no indifference when it comes to the gospel. It is either accepted or rejected. It's either foolishness or it's the power of God. And to those who the gospel seems to be foolish, that person is not a believer and the road they're taking is the road to destruction. But to those who see the gospel as God's power and God's wisdom. They are the believers. They are the ones who are on the road to life. And then Paul, he makes this bold statement of the divisiveness of the cross of Christ between those who believe and those who reject it. And he quotes Isaiah 29, verse 14. Look at verse 19 here. And and this is a quotation from Isaiah 29, 14. He says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Now, the context of the passage in Isaiah 29, 14 uh, is this. um, Israel claimed to honor God with their lips, but their heart was far from God. Why? What was happening? Because they were too busy following themselves. They were too busy following their own rules, their own wisdom. Because at the heart of the issue, the reason why they could honor, only honor God with their lips, but not with their heart. Because what was going on in their heart is they thought they were smarter than God. They knew better than God. So they would take God's law and they would modify God's law to accommodate their needs. 
And God says, what's the point of honoring me with your lips but not following me in obedience? Your heart is far from me because in your mind you're thinking, I don't need to obey God. I know better. I'm going to obey God the way I think I should obey God, not the, not the way God says I should obey him. And so what Paul does, he knows this passage, he picks it up, and what he is stating through this passage is that sinful human beings think they are smarter than God. Look at the cross. Look at a crucified Savior. They look at it and what do they say? That's absolute foolishness. That is absurd. There is no way that God can save people by sending His Son to die for them. How do you save people through dying? Last time I checked, you don't save them through dying because if you're dead, you can't save them. And the world says God must explain himself to us. God must justify himself to us. And the point that Paul is making is, is this. There is going to come a time where God is going to demolish such foolishness. The world is screaming out, telling God, you better justify yourself and explain yourself to us. And we will approve you or reject you based on our intelligence. And Paul is saying, no, God's going to destroy you when the time comes. Look at how Paul shows the wisdom of God. Look at verse 20. He, he says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. So, so Paul offers four rhetorical questions. In the last rhetorical question, he kind of explains. He says Paul highlights how God made worldly wisdom look foolish through what he and others have preached, a crucified Savior. And this pleased God because God and his wisely planned saved the believers through what the wise, quote-unquote, considered foolish. And then Paul is going to highlight two types of worldly wisdom. Look at verse 22. He says, For the Jew asks for signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And because, of, because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. So as he's reasoning with them, trying to show them the foolishness of this world. And he brings up two types of wisdom from the world. Namely, the first wisdom is that of the Jews. So when it comes to a Savior, what did the Jews expect? They expected a mighty Savior, a conquering king who would come and deliver them powerfully from the bondage of those who oppress them and rule over them. And the Savior was going to come and set them free and sit on his throne and rule forever through his mighty hand. 
And when they look at a, the idea of a crucified Savior, they thought there is no way that God could deliver his people through a crucified Savior because anyone who's crucified cannot come from God because someone who's crucified is cursed. Because their own law, Deuteronomy, 7, Deuteronomy 21 verse 23 teaches, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And so the idea of a crucified Savior is absolutely revolting and weak. It means they are cursed. That's the wisdom of the Jews. It's the wisdom of some of us in our world today. This message of Jesus dying for us is weak. It makes no sense. If God truly wanted to save us, why wouldn't he just come with a mighty hand and get rid of our enemies once and for all? And the second worldly wisdom he brings up is that of the, the Greeks or, or the Gentiles. What did the Greeks and the Gentiles value? They valued logic. They valued reason. And they perceived that anything beautiful, anything helpful must be logical and rational. Isn't that kind of our culture today? If it's beautiful, it's helpful, it must be logical and rational. And if a deliverer is going to come, how is he going to deliver his people? He's going to set up better government, better education, better systems, better structures, better leadership. And that is how he is going to deliver his people by creating laws that's going to create peace and order. Isn't that what our world is kind of longing for? The best government system, the best economic system, the best educational system, the best laws that will create peace and order, that's what they thought a Savior should do. And they hear now about a crucified Savior, and in their minds, if you're crucified, you're a criminal. Only criminals die on the cross. How can a crucified Savior make laws that establishes peace and order? Because last time I checked, someone who's crucified don't make laws. They break the law and they create disorder and chaos. So the idea of a crucified Savior is absolutely embarrassing, foolish, absurd. And so both worldly wisdoms look at this crucified Savior as a paradox, as a contradiction. Because what does crucified denotes? It denotes shame, weakness, failure, loss, scandalous evil. And a savior denotes grandeur, strength, success, victory, and the highest honor. And to the world, they look at this message and they say it makes no sense. It is weak at its best. And it's absolutely foolish at its best. And yet, what does Paul say? Paul says, yes, but according to God, the crucified Savior is God's power and God's wisdom. He says, for those who are called by God, verse 24, yet those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, this crucified Savior, the, 
the cross of Christ. The Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. And then in verse 25, he says this, even in God's so-called foolishness, way wiser than the world and all of its brilliance. Even in the so-called weakness of God is way stronger than man could ever imagine. So let's stop here. Because have you noticed we haven't talked about unity once? And yet, what's the issue Paul's addressing? Unity. So the question, I think a helpful question that we need to ask is, okay, like what is Paul's point in these verses by unifying a church that's dividing over church leaders? Here's what we have to understand. Part of the reason for division is that they are acting like the world. That's why they're dividing. They're acting like the world. And what is Paul trying to show them? He is showing them that through the cross of Christ, you've been separated from the world. The gospel divides us from the world. The world thinks it's foolishness. The world thinks it's a weak message. And yet we who are in Christ, we who have been called by God, who have believed, we think and we know it is the power and the wisdom of God. And basically, he's trying to tell them, quit acting like the world. Quit following worldly values and worldly wisdom. And he's doing that by reminding them what is the message they've heard? What is the message they've received? What is the message that has radically transformed their lives? The message of a crucified Savior. So if you're taking notes, here's what Paul is showing them. Here's the message. The message is that of a crucified Savior. If you're taking notes, it is the, the cross of Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. It is the power and wisdom of God. And the point he's trying to make is that God's power, God's wisdom is far superior to that of the world. His wisdom and his strength What the world values, its wisdom and its strength, is going to be destroyed. It leads to destruction. And you who've been called out of it, why go back there? Here's what we have to understand, and I think it's so very hard. Like, All of us, I think, including myself, we have to admit we are more influenced by the world than what we care to admit. And what we try to do as Christians is, how can I live with God's values and the world's values? Like, what's a happy medium? And here's Paul's point. There is no happy medium. They don't go side by side. And I think for us, like, like for the church in Corinth to pursue unity, they have to quit living like the world. For us to pursue unity, we have to quit living like the world. But, but here's a question I think all of us have to honestly ask ourselves. And I do think, write this question down, and I do think there requires some soul searching. There requires some honesty, looking in the mirror, asking the Holy Spirit to convict you. 
how much of your worldviews is still being influenced by the world? How much of your values, how you think, how you act, how you talk, is still being influenced by the world? If we want unity, that's a question we have to honestly ask and honestly answer. Here's what we're going to do. Let, let, I'm not going to move on in the sermon. Let, let's, can we pray right now and ask the Lord to, to, when we go and ask that question, to reveal to us? And if there's some sin, let's confess it. Let's repent of it. Because what's the good news? Is there forgiveness? Is God committed to you and taking you out of the world and perfecting you? So that question is not a... Um, what, 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 that question is not meant to condemn you. That question is meant to set you free. Let's, let's pray. Lord, can you, through your spirit, just help us to look in the mirror and honestly ask this question. How much of the world and its values are we being influenced by? And how we're acting and what we're thinking and what we're saying and what we're believing. Well, can you expose that and reveal that to us? Can you convict us of it, knowing that conviction is a grace, and can you help us to repent of it, knowing there's forgiveness, knowing that you've set us free? Lord, and maybe for some of us, when we ask that question, we might feel a little crushed. Can you graciously remind us that we belong to you, that you've set us apart from this world, and that we can freely ask that question? Can you help us, Lord? In Jesus' name, amen. Paul now is going to remind them, he reminds them of the message he preached, crucified Savior, Christ is the power and wisdom of God. Now he's going to remind them of who they were before God called them and who the followers of Christ is. Look at, look at verse 26. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. Let's just stop here. It's one of my favorite verses. What Paul was doing is now he's reminding them as followers Hey, think about the time that God has sovereignly called you Church of Corinth. Who were you before Christ, according to human standards? Were you wise? Were you influential? Were you of noble birth? In other words, like, the point he's trying to make is, did God choose you because you're so strong and so awesome? and so wise, and, and comes from such good pedigree of a family? He's like, no, not many of you. He's not saying all of you, but he says not many of you were wise. 
Not many of you had your life together. Not many of you, according to human standards, uh, come from noble birth. But rather, God choose the exact opposite of human standards. Like, like, think about the irony here. We as humans, who do we pick? The cream of the crop, the strongest, the brightest, that that comes from noble families, those with the most talent. Who does God pick? The opposite. The unwise, the weak, the invalid, the outcast, the ones that nobody wants. And why does he do that? To shame the world, to shame the wise, to shame the strong, to shame the elite class. Like, this is how God has chosen throughout the Bible. Like, like, like when God chose Jacob over Esau, in that culture, I am sorry, you do not choose the youngest brother. Who do you choose? God, God was supposed to choose Esau. Not only was he the oldest brother, but he was the strongest brother. He was a man of man. He had hair. He could hunt. The one that anybody would pick. Yet he picks Jacob. The weakling, mama's boy, had no hair, no masculinity to him. His name actually meant deceiver. Like he deceives people. He tricks people. He's a trickster. And yet God, God picks him. God chose Israel. Why did he choose Israel? Deuteronomy 7 verse 7 says, I did not choose you because you were the strongest. Actually, the opposite. You were weak. You were few. What's the point that Paul is making? Why does God choose a people for himself? Why does God choose the uneducated, the non-influential, the weak, the disdained by this world? Look at verse 29. So that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In other words, if God chose primarily those who are wise, influential, or high-born, they might proudly presume that God has chosen me because of my elite status. That's why God chooses mostly low-status people. Why? So that they cannot boast in themselves, but in the Lord. And as a result of God's choosing, believers are united in Christ. They have, look at verse 30, it is from him that you are united in Christ who became wisdom from God for us. 
In other words, because of our union with Christ, because of the power and wisdom of God through Christ, Christ now has practically become our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. In other words, what he's saying is, because God has chosen you and he has set you apart and he has united you with Christ, here is all the benefits now you have in Christ. He is your righteousness. He is your sanctification. He is your redemption. Well, I like, think about this. Christ is our righteousness. What does that mean? It means that God has declared us to be righteous, not based on our righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Theologians called us the imputed righteousness of Christ. So in other words, when God looks at you, he does not see one great disappointment. I know most of us, we look in the mirror and what do we see? Just one giant disappointment. But God, in your sin, because you are in Christ, he sees you as righteous, perfect, and holy because he sees Christ's righteousness in you. Christ is not only just your righteousness, he's your sanctification. We talked about it two weeks ago. He has positionally set you apart to be holy. And practically, he is committed and making you holy. So however you want to look at it, your holiness is wrapped up in Christ because you've been positionally set apart. Now Christ is committed through the work of his spirit of making you in what you are. And then he says, but he's not just our righteousness, sanctification, he's also our redemption. You know what redemption means? It's a term of slavery, where God has bought you from the bondage of slavery. You were enslaved to sin, and he paid the ransom. He paid the price to set you free from it. And what was the price that he paid? The blood of his son, Jesus Christ. What's our response to this calling? to being in Christ, being united in Christ and receiving all the benefits now we have in Christ. You know what's our response? Look at verse 31. In order that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In other words, it's like, yeah, let's boast. In who? In the Lord. In the Lord alone. Again, you're like, well, I still don't see unity in this. Again, Paul's addressing unity. So what's the point? What's the point that he's making in trying to unify the church? Think about this. The first reason why the church was dividing because they were being more influenced by the world. Here's the second reason why the church was dividing and why churches divide. They divide because of pride. They divide because of pride. The church of Corinth, their pride was wrapped up in association with a teacher that's more important than another teacher. My teacher is better than yours, which means I'm better than you. It was driven by pride, wanting to make themselves feel more important than others. And what is Paul doing? First of all, Paul graciously reminded them, hey, look at the message that you believed. It sets you apart from the world. It is way wiser, way stronger than anything the world could ever do because it's centered on the cross of Christ. And now, Paul is graciously reminding them why they shouldn't have any pride. He says, hey guys, let me tell you a little secret. The reason why the Lord called you and chose you 
It's not because you were wise. It's not because you were strong. It's not because you were influential. Actually, it was the opposite. God picked you because you were weak. God picked you because you brought nothing to the table. Why? So that there's no boasting other than in the Lord. So so here's the second principle we learn as we're reminded of the message. Now we're reminded of his followers. God chose mostly low-status people. God chose and he chooses mostly low-status people. Not the elite. It wasn't because we were special. Here, think about this now. Let me apply it to you here. Why do you think God picked you? Why do you think he chose you? It wasn't because you were bright. It wasn't because you brought anything to the table. It's actually the opposite. You brought nothing to the table. And yet he still chose you. For some of us, that should stimulate humility. Because it's like, oh my. Look at God's incredible grace in my life. And then for the outcasts and for the marginalized and for the ones that no one really cares about, that should encourage you. God loves you. And he sent his son to die for you. And he's drawing you in. The world might reject you and want nothing to do with you and say you are a burden to society. But what God is saying is no. You belong to me. I have called you, I have chosen you, and I am making you to be my son and my daughter. And what that should create in us is a posture of humility. We as Christians should be one of the most humblest people, not because we know it all, but because of who we were and what Christ has done for us, and that he has called us, and that he has chosen us, and that he has made us his sons and daughters. And it's not because of what we've done. It's not because of what we've brought to the table. It's the opposite. Because we brought nothing to the table. We've done nothing to earn it or deserve it. It is holy of his grace, through his son, Jesus Christ, that we have just graciously received this incredible gift that he freely gives us by faith. And in our humility, I know this almost like this paradox, in our humility, we are boasting in the Lord and in the Lord alone. That's Paul's point. So so let's talk about some application here. How do we pursue unity as God's people? If we are reminded that the message is about a crucified Savior that is the power and wisdom of God and to the world it's foolishness and weak. If we as his followers have been chosen because we are a low status people, what does that mean for us? How do we pursue unity as the church in the 21st century? If you're taking notes, here's the very first application. We fix our eyes on Christ who is the wisdom and power of God. 
we fix our eyes on Christ, who is the wisdom and power of God. Why do you think Paul's unpacking the gospel? He wants them to fix their eyes on Jesus Christ. So what do we do? We fix our eyes on Christ because Christ is God's power. Christ is God's wisdom. I want to share Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 to 2. It says, Therefore, since we've been surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every hindrance and sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us run the race with endurance that's laid before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source, the author, the perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down down at the right hand of the throne of God. And in other words, we are just like the church of Corinth. We get so easily distracted by the influence of our culture around us. And the command that the author in Hebrews gives us is, let's get rid of the things that are distracting us. Let's quitting look around us. Let's get the sin that is entangling us and ensnaring us and that is prohibiting us from running. Let's throw it off and let's keep our eyes on Jesus. And we run this race with endurance, knowing that he is the author, he is the source, and he is the perfecter of our faith. That salvation begins with him and will end with him. And how does all of that work out? We have no idea, but let us fix our eyes on Jesus and let's run this race with endurance. And the second we now start taking our eyes on, off, off of Jesus and we get distracted by the things of this world and we get ensnared by the things, by sin that so easily entangles us, what happens to the church? We no longer run. We want unity here. We need to first of all fix our eyes on Christ. Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. And I think part of it we need to recognize the gospel makes no sense to the world. And yet, the gospel is God's power and wisdom. It has changed me. It has radically transformed me. The person I am now is not the person who I once was. And it's not because I was that awesome. It was actually the opposite. Which leads me to our second point of application. If you're taking notes, like as we fix our eyes on Christ, who is God's power and God's wisdom, we as God's people, we walk in humility as God's chosen people. We walk in humility as God's chosen people. How do we walk in humility? Why can we walk in humility? God has chosen us and we are united with Christ. On what basis did God choose me? On no basis on my own. In other words, why does God love me? Not because I'm lovable. He loves me because he loves me. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 to 14. Paul says, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly love, put on compassion kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. 
man, what a beautiful place it would be if we all, as God's chosen people, walk in humility. And I love those two phrases together because the Bible constantly calls us as God's chosen people because what that means to be chosen by God, it gives us assurance in our salvation. Because we are secure in Christ and we have assurance of our salvation in Christ, now I can walk in humility. And when I start move away from humility and pride, it's because I forget about my assurance and then now, now start to look at myself and want to accomplish and want to achieve. And now I got to be better than all of you. That's what the world teaches. But that's not what God's word teaches. Let's walk in humility, people. Let's be reminded you've been chosen by God. You've been set apart by God. You've been saved because of what Christ has done for you. You can rest in it and walk in it. Let's pray and let's, let's do some, some meditating. Lord, you know our hearts. You know our thoughts right now. We can't hide anything. You know what we struggle with. You know how much the world influences us and how many of the values of this world we've bought into. Lord, can you help us to fix our eyes on you? Can you help us to keep the cross of Christ central, knowing it is the wisdom of God and the power of God that has brought salvation to us? And Lord, can you help us to walk in humility as God's chosen people? Lord, if there's pride in us, Can you reveal that? Can you make that known? Can you help us to confess? Can you help us to repent and turn to you? So for the believer, if you're in Christ, you walk in humility and you fix your eyes on Christ. But then for some of you, you are maybe not a believer You hear what I'm preaching and you're like, I don't know if I believe that. It sounds a little foolish. It sounds a little weak. I want to tell you, you're here for a reason. God has somehow sovereignly brought you here to hear this message. And he's speaking to you. And he's making himself known to you. And he is showing you that the ways of this world is foolish. The ways of this world leads to destruction. We have followed our own wisdom and look at what we have, a dumpster fire. We follow our own strength and look what we have, a bunch of insecure people that only likes to flex their muscles and it leads to destruction. And yet God in his love for you sent his son to die for you, to redeem you, to buy you out of slavery. And the reason why you're here is because God has a plan for you and God is drawing you in. And I am begging of you, stop and just listen. I have been praying for you for weeks now that the Lord would open up your ears, your eyes, and your heart 
that you would recognize that the ways of this world is foolish and leads to destruction and that you cannot save yourself. You need a savior. And God has provided a powerful, wise, perfect savior that has laid down his life for you once and for all. And he is calling you and he's inviting you in by faith to receive it and to believe it. And if that's you this morning, you are hearing God's calling can you respond to that calling and saying, yes, Lord, I don't understand all of this. I need a savior. I need you. Can you come and save me? Can you come and make me new? And if that's you this morning, can you after the service come and talk to us? We want to help you understand what it means to be a Christian. We want to help explain to you what it means to trust Jesus and how your life will never be the same, and how the Bible describes you as the old is gone, the new has come. We want to disciple you, and we want to see the Lord do incredible things in your life.